Well, good morning. It's great to be with you. Uh, I enjoyed uh, the one accord worship last night. And then uh, Pastor Sean Martinez and the group he had was fantastic. But I'll tell you what I'm really looking forward to. I've been scanning down the uh, page there, and it says at 1030 we're going to have some Spanish worship. The Spanish worship team. So I'm really looking forward to that. I'm expecting kind of Herb Albert in the Tijuana Brass. <laughs> I got high expectations now for the Spanish worship, so I'm really looking forward to that. How many of you have a dog at home? How many of you have a wife at home? Well, let, let me just say right up front, there, there are a lot of ways that women are better than dogs. There, there are a lot of ways that women are better than dogs. I just want to say that up front. But there are a few ways that dogs are better than women. And so I brought with me uh, this morning the top ten reasons that dogs are better than women. You ready for this? Maybe. Okay. All right. Number ten, a dog's time in the bathroom is limited to a quick drink. <laughs> Number nine, dogs love it when your friends come over. <laughs> Number eight, dogs can appreciate excessive body hair. <laughs> Number seven, dogs don't expect you to call when you're running late. Number six, the later you are, the happier the dog is to see you. <laughs> Not so much with a woman. <laughs> Number five, dogs like it when you leave a lot of things on the floor. <laughs> Number four, it's my favorite. Dogs don't mind if you give away their offspring. <laughs> Trust me, women have a problem with that when you try. You know? Number three, dogs understand instincts are better than asking for directions. <laughs> Number two, it's, brave. it's amazing how brave we can be when there are no women in the room. <laughs> Number two, a dog's disposition stays the same all month long. <laughs> and the number one way that dogs are better than women, a dog's mother never visits. <laughs> Absolutely, that's a good one. <laughs> well, I, uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here, and I really appreciate the theme uh, of our conference. You know, I was, just, I was just thinking, how can we really live today unless we know how it's all going to turn out, you know? We have the advantage of being able to read ahead. We can go to the final chapter of the book and we can read, we can see how it all turns out. And we have the strategic, uh, the strategic view that we can live our lives today in light of how things are going to turn out in the future. And so uh, I'm very excited about this. We're, we're gleaning lessons for today from the end of the age. 
We started last night with Pastor Charlie's uh, great exhortation from Revelation chapter 6. And this morning, uh, I've been assigned the Great Tribulation, this first session, the Rapture of the Church, the second session, Second Coming of Jesus, what I'll talk about tonight, and then tomorrow morning, the Millennial Kingdom. Wow, what a, a great... Uh, a great ambition for us to cover these issues the next few sessions. This morning, though, I want us to turn in our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter 5. And I want to talk about the great tribulation. Or the way I'd like to phrase it, the day of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Let's read... Verses 1 through 11, and then we'll pray. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. Father in heaven, thank you for these words, for these promises, for this great hope that you've given your people. As Jesus said on the night he was betrayed, that he has gone to prepare a place for us. And we believe that that's where he is today. That's what he's occupied doing. He's preparing a place for us. But as surely as he is, he has promised to come back and to get us and to bring us into those chambers. And we're looking forward, Lord, to your return. Lord, I pray that as we dwell on these uh, issues, as we continue to dwell on these issues, these next few sessions, I pray you would enlighten us. You would speak to us, Lord. You would challenge us. Lord, we are living in dire times, in desperate times. We are living, we have the privilege of being the generation that is living at the end of the age Lord, help us to know how to make each day count in anticipation. We love you. We ask that you bless this morning by your spirit, through your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. In July 1994, astronomers were treated to a spectacle in the skies, a cosmic demolition derby. Twenty chunks of a shattered comet named Shoemaker-Levy 9 smashed into the planet Jupiter, 
Massive hunks of ice and rock hit the Jovian atmosphere at 134,000 miles per hour. It was a deep impact. When fragment G hit, the planet released a fireball, a gaseous plume 5,000 miles wide by 1,600 miles high. The force of the explosion was the equivalent to 6 million megatons of TNT. That's 100,000 times the power of the largest nuclear bomb ever detonated on planet Earth. Glenn Orton, an astronomer at the California Jet Propulsion Laboratory, made the comment, it was like God striking the planet. Indeed. Of course, the fireworks on Jupiter stirred a lot of speculation on Earth. Could similar cosmic debris smash into our planet? And the answer was a definite yes. In fact, not only can it, the phenomena occurs every single day. The Earth gets a daily sprinkling of over 20 tons of cosmic rock. Most of the 20 tons is space dust, the size of a grain of sand. But scientists also have evidence of larger strikes. Geologists have documented 140 craters around the globe that are the result of incoming asteroids or comets or meteors. In 1908, a comet exploded in a remote region of Siberia. In 1993, a tractor-trailer-sized asteroid passed within 90,000 miles of the Earth. That's less than half the distance between the Earth and the Moon. That's a close call, according to astronomical standards. Currently, NASA is tracking as many as 4,000 NEOs, or near-Earth objects, that are streaking through space that could strike the Earth with little or no warning. Donald Yeomans, an astronomer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, made this statement. Space is filled with objects that threaten Earth. Earth runs its course about the sun in a swarm of asteroids. Sooner or later, our planet will be struck by one of them. Even now, it's as if God is firing warning shots across our bow to encourage us to repent. Several years ago, a National Geographic special referred to these projectiles in biblical terms. It called them mountains tumbling through space. It may surprise you, but the Bible predicts that one day God is going to judge this earth by striking the perverse planet with an extraterrestrial mountain. Revelation 8 describes the fireworks that one day will be a reality in fact, John sounds like NASA. He says something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died. And a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And the name of the star is Wormwood, or bitterness. And a third of the waters became bitter, and many men died from the water. And I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. As Glenn Orton put it, it was like God striking the planet. Here's what no one today wants to admit. God sees mankind's sin and rebellion. 
God sees our blatant disregard for his word. God sees mankind's snotty arrogance. God sees our militant secularism. God sees our shameless perversions. And trust me, God isn't going to sit back forever. He is not going to be silent for eternity. God will see to it that a day of reckoning is on the horizon. Guys, it is almost high noon at the OK Corral. God is going to shake the pillars of the universe to get our attention. He is going to bring this arrogant planet to its knees. Years ago, I read where Ladbrokes, which is a London bookmaker, was giving 40 to 1 odds that an alien will visit our planet in the near future. At that particular time, if a visitor had dropped in, it would have cost Ladbrokes over a half a million dollars. Apparently, they took a lot of bets. But it's a certainty. One day, Ladbrokes will be forced to pay up because this earth is going to be invaded by an extraterrestrial visitor, and his name is Jesus Christ. There are more biblical passages that promise Jesus' second coming than his first. Someone counted 2,163 references. Currently, we are living in an age when mankind is getting his way. Man is having his say. Today is called the day of man. Mankind rules the roost here on earth. Yet the Bible teaches that the sun is going to set on the day of man and that a new day is going to dawn on this earth. A time when God will have his say, when God will get his way in the affairs of men. God is going to shut up the opinions of men. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, is going to come back to this earth to clean house. Our Lord is going to judge evildoers. He's going to right all wrongs. He's going to return to establish his kingdom. In our text this morning, Paul refers to this period of time as the day of the Lord. It reminds me of my dad. Whenever dad taught boys fifth grade Sunday school, he always had an interesting way of easing into his lesson. Before he began, he would open up the lesson. He would say, okay, boys. Anybody can say anything they'd like for the next few moments. You can talk about any subject you want. Girls, baseball, whatever you want, you can talk about it. Well, of course, when given the opportunity to speak, everybody just sat there silent. You know. <laughs> well, after a while, my dad, he would open up his Bible and he would say, All right, then, I've given you boys a chance to talk, and I've sat here respectfully and I've listened to you. Now it's my turn to talk, and I expect you to sit here respectfully and listen to me. And this is what God is going to say at the end of the age. Today, God is sitting back. He's listening to mankind's foolishness and blasphemy. But the day is coming when it'll be God's turn. Trust me, God will get the last word. Notice Paul begins here in verse 1. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. 
Now realize, when we talk about the day of the Lord, we're not necessarily speaking of a 24-hour period. In history class, the professor might say, the day of Rome's republic, or the day of space exploration. Rome was a republic for 500 years, not just for 24 hours. The term day can speak of an indefinite period of time. The bookends for the day of the Lord are the rapture of the church at its start and the new heaven and new earth, which are its grand finale. And in between, there are multiple events. The marriage supper of the Lamb, the rise of the Antichrist, seven years of great tribulation, the battle of Armageddon, the coming of Christ in power and great glory, the salvation of Israel, the judgment of the nations, the millennial reign of Christ, the battle with Magog, a universal inferno, the great white throne of judgment. The proceedings included in the day of the Lord cover a time frame of a little more than a thousand years. Here in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul is concerned about the onset of these events. He wants the church to be ready for the miracle that will set this all off that he describes at the end of chapter 4, we call it the rapture. Jesus will return in the twinkling of an eye to snatch up his church. And he wants us living our lives in anticipation of Jesus' return. You know, over the years, I've been pretty critical of what I call date setters. You know, who, people who claim to know when the rapture is actually going to take place. But as I was praying about this weekend, actually the Lord revealed to me the exact time of the rapture. I got a special revelation. I thought I'd, I'd just kind of share with this group this morning. I got it down now within the hour, okay? It, I got it down within the hour. And here it is. Jesus is going to return to earth sometime between 2 and 3 a.m. Okay? Somewhere on the earth it's going to be between 2 and 3 a.m. when Jesus returns. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. Actually, no one knows the exact moment when the rapture is going to occur. In Mark chapter 13, verse 32, Jesus himself declares, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. <coughs> no one knows the exact day or the specific hour. But it's interesting, Paul does tell us that we should know the times and the seasons. I'll never forget the Sunday morning that my wife Kathy gave birth to our first son. She was nine months pregnant. She was great with child. It was obvious. She looked like one of those hot air balloons in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. <laughs> my skinny little wife, man, was so inflated, I th thought I had to hold her down with ropes and twine and so forth so she wouldn't fly off. It was obvious this woman was having a baby, and sooner rather than later. But you know that Sunday morning when her water broke? My, oh my, it was still a surprise to us both. We were shocked. We were sure the day was coming. She had her backpack for weeks, but when the moment finally arrived, it was a shock to us both. And here's how Paul tells us the day of the Lord begins. 
as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. You know it's on the horizon. You can tell the times and the seasons. But when it actually comes, it'll be a stunner. You know, the Bible is full of signposts that indicate to us that we are at the end of the age. For starters, consider the rebirth of the nation Israel, a people in exile that hadn't existed as a nation for 1,900 years, almost two millenniums, in our generation has suddenly been reborn. A desert has blossomed overnight. Their language has risen from the ashes. It's all unprecedented in the annals of human history. And God predicted it all in advance. Modern Israel is proof of God's faithfulness. It reminds me of the pagan king of Prussia. One day he asked the devout Christian, Count Zinzendorf, he says, Can you prove to me your faith? Zinzendorf replied in two words, the Jew. The modern state of Israel is a miracle indeed. But we could go on and on noting signs. The Zionist movement to relocate Jews to Israel. Plans to rebuild a Jewish temple the Israeli-Arab peace efforts, the reunification of Europe, unrest with Persia, a.k.a. Iran, momentum toward global government in a one-world economy, a preponderance of earthquakes and disease and famine and natural disasters, not to mention a proliferation of knowledge and technology and travel. I can take you to chapter and verse and show you the Bible's prophecies. And these are just a few of the phenomena that signal the end. Canvas today's news, and you'll recognize the times and the seasons. Besides, as far as I'm concerned, if Jesus doesn't return soon, God is going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. The world is growing more and more perverse by the second. If God doesn't intervene soon, we're going to annihilate ourselves. The world is so pregnant with judgment, it's about to pop. And according to Paul, when the day of the Lord begins, it comes like a new mom's initial contractions. It starts suddenly. Jesus descends in the clouds to snatch away his church. Even though we know he's coming, it's still a surprise. The day comes as a thief in the night. The rapture happens unexpectedly. You know, a burglar doesn't make an announcement, doesn't schedule an appointment with his victim before he robs him, doesn't send out a notice a few days ahead of time that a heist is about to take place. He waits until you least expect it, and then he strikes. This is why you and I need to be rapture watchers. We see the end-time scenarios like a storm brewing and forming in the distance, but the first thunderclap is the rapture of the church. Paul wants us to be ready. But notice what follows. As believers go up, judgment comes down. Read verse 2. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. You need to know this world is barreling toward judgment. And notice a pseudo-peace will precede this sudden destruction. Before the ink dries on the paper, peace treaties will be broken. And Israel will be betrayed and attacked. On September 29, 1938, 
Great Britain signed a treaty with Germany. Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain agreed to let Adolf Hitler take a slice of the land from his neighbor, Czechoslovakia. In exchange, Hitler promised no more aggression. In fact, the British press held the agreement as peace for our time. But the Brits were seriously duped. Six months later, Hitler had taken over all of Czechoslovakia. In less than a year, the Nazis were marching on Poland. And one day, Israel will make a similar mistake. They'll be charmed by the promise of shalom or peace. Another dynamic leader, much like Hitler. Charlie talked about him last night. The Bible calls him the Antichrist. Will smooth talk the Jews to the peace table. But their partner in peace has evil motives. They will enter into a sinister shalom. And the Bible has much to say about this future peace treaty. Isaiah 28 verse 18 calls it a covenant with death and your agreement with hell. Daniel speaks of a future leader who will rise up against God. Daniel 8 verse 25 tells us through his cunning he shall cause deceit to prosper. As we learned last night, Daniel 9 verse 27 even pinpoints this peace treaty's place on the timeline. Notice Paul warns, when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction. You know, Acts chapter 17 verse 30 speaks of God's patience in the past. Paul says these times of ignorance God overlooked. You know, today God winks at sin, not because he approves of what he sees or is afraid to judge sinners. No, it just isn't time yet. You see, Daniel 9 tells us that God has set aside a future seven-year period to judge this rebel planet. He has reserved the harshest judgments for the end of the age. The Bible even has a name for this period of human history. It refers to it as the Great Tribulation. You know, today the world persecutes the church. But in that day, God himself will persecute this wicked world. God is going to take this world to the woodshed. Terrible, fearful judgments are going to strike this planet that will make natural disasters like the Chernobyl meltdown and the Japan tsunami and the Haitian earthquake and the Katrina hurricane look like child's play. At the moment, man is riding his high horse. But friends, he's going to get shot down. God is going to intervene. As we learned last night, Revelation teaches us that the title deed to the earth is sealed with seven seals. And when Jesus takes possession of the scroll, he's going to pop those seals and serious judgments will be unleashed. Seven trumpets will sound additional punishments. Then seven bowls of wrath will be poured out with still more. People will run for cover in that day. They'll try to commit suicide to escape, but God won't allow it. Expect a full-scale assault on sinners. God will knock man off his high horse, and our Lord Jesus will return on a white horse. Amen. Friends, this isn't metaphor. This isn't symbolism. This isn't some kind of sci-fi. This is the Bible's prophetic forecast for a future seven years on planet Earth. It is called Great Tribulation 
for a reason. The day of the Lord begins with the rapture. Jesus comes as a thief in the night unexpectedly for his church. But that's when the world gets lulled into a false peace. The world kind of gets rocked into to sleep. Everyone starts to think, well, happy days are here again. We finally gotten rid of those Christians. But when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction. Daniel 9 verse 27 gives us the mark on the timeline for the great tribulation. The final seven years begin when Israel signs a peace treaty and enters into this sinister shalom. Halfway through the seven years, Israel's treaty gets broken. God takes vengeance on a world who has betrayed his people. He ramps up, ramps up his judgments. And then finally, at the end of that seven years, Jesus returns to rescue his people Israel and establish his long-awaited kingdom on the earth. Now, before we go further, let me clear up some possible confusion. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Jesus returns before the sudden destruction. He comes in the clouds. He comes to snatch his church up to heaven and deliver us from wrath. But other Bible passages teach that Jesus will return at the end of these judgments to rescue the Jews, to punish his enemies, and to establish his kingdom on the earth. Jesus comes back. He touches down on this earth and reigns a thousand years. When you try to put those two scenarios together, that means there are actually two different second comings of Christ. One is before the destruction, in the clouds, for the church, and the world will struggle for an explanation. The other is after the destruction, to the earth, to rescue Israel, and the world recognizes that it's Jesus. Of course, there are folks who try to put both of these comings together, that Jesus will rapture his church and rebuild his kingdom at the same time. They believe that the church will have to endure God's fierce judgments. But I say, not so. This is not what Paul teaches us throughout 1 Thessalonians. In chapter 1, verse 10, Paul commends the believers, and I quote, for turning from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who does what? who delivers us from the wrath to come. Notice, we aren't destined for God's wrath. We, rather, we are delivered from God's wrath. At the moment, the Thessalonians were taking it on the chin from the world around them. But when Jesus returns, he's going to deliver them from the wrath to come. Now, certainly, God uses tribulation today in our discipleship. In fact, it's the opposition that we encounter from this world that builds endurance and that purifies our faith. Yes, we are subject to the world's animosity, but that is a far cry from being subject to God's animosity on this world. Just as Lot was escorted out of Sodom before the city was destroyed, the church is going to be delivered from the day when God pours out his wrath on this wicked world. Paul says it again in chapter 5, verse 9. He says, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you know Jesus, great tribulation is not in your future. We have been saved from wrath to salvation. And this idea is not only taught in 1 Thessalonians, but it's taught throughout the scriptures. In Revelation 3 verse 10, Jesus promises the faithful church, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. They're kept from the global tribulation that's to come. In contrast, Jesus says to the unfaithful church, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. Notice her punishment is the great tribulation, but implied is that the church of Jesus Christ was not intended for God's end of the age judgments. In fact, there's an obscure prophecy. It's in Isaiah chapter 26 that I believe is an invitation to the church to be ready for the rapture. Isaiah writes, Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. That's the snatching away. That's the taking up of the church. He says, hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment. That's those seven years of judgment. Until the indignation or the great tribulation is passed. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. You see, the beauty of our salvation is that it's multifaceted. We are saved from sin, from the law, from guilt, from judgment, from condemnation, from hell itself, even from the world. But we are also saved from the wrath to come. And I rejoice in that fact. Notice, too, the last line here in chapter 5, verse 3. He says, they shall not escape. Folks who are duped into accepting this false peace and who suffer sudden destruction shall not escape. But Paul's implication is that some will. That's why he's writing to the Thessalonians. God provides his church a great escape. That's why they need to discern the seasons and stay rapture ready. We need to be listening for the shout, for the trumpet. We need to be watching for Jesus. The next prophetic event to take place is the rapture of the church. Nothing needs to happen before Jesus calls us home. It is the next benchmark on the timeline. The day of the Lord begins with the rapture. One of the great themes of the Bible is the doctrine of imminency. That Jesus Christ returns for the church. That his return is imminent. In essence, it can happen at any moment. This is why I believe in the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. For if the rapture doesn't occur before the great tribulation, then it's not imminent. If it's at the end of the tribulation, then we can count off seven years. We know when it's going to happen. We can chart it to the very day. That's why I'm not looking for judgment. I'm looking for Jesus. And this is why Paul stirs us up here in verse 4. He says, but you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You're all sons of light and sons of the day. A believer in Jesus isn't in the dark. The means by which I become a Christian introduces me to certain truths about God. 
The instant I'm saved, I'm ushered into his marvelous light. I wake up to the day. I learn that Jesus is all about salvation. Grace is all about escaping wrath. Faith is all about not being overtaken. We should know better than to think that we're destined for judgment. If we know Jesus, we know he's all about deliverance. Paul continues, he says, For we are not of the night, nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Earlier in 1 Thessalonians, Paul talked about those believers who had died. Their soul was alive with Jesus, but their body was asleep in the grave. The word sleep implied a peaceful state. But the term sleep here in verse 6 is a different word. It means a deadening of the senses. The dictionary definition reads, to yield to sloth and sin, to be indifferent to your salvation. Some people are slumbering their lives away. They don't care about eternal realities. They're caught up in the here and now. They're asleep to the things of God. The word sleep implies three traits, an insensitivity, an inactivity, and an endangerment. People who are asleep are insensitive to God and to his word. People who are spiritually asleep are inactive. They have no desire to serve the Lord. People who are asleep spiritually are in danger. A man who's asleep is defenseless. He's vulnerable to spiritual attacks. And I'm afraid some of us have dozed off spiritually. This morning, I want to shake you up. I want to wake you up. I hope this Bible study is a strong cup of coffee. Once a little boy went to say his bedtime prayers, but he got kind of tongue-tied. Rather than his normal prayer, if I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. He prayed, if I should wake before I die. But that's what we need to be praying for our friends and for our family. That spiritually speaking, they will wake up before they die. That they'll wake up before their life on this earth is over. You know, it's easy to discuss the end of the age in God's final judgments when we do it in the abstract. But when we put a face on it, this is going to affect Uncle Bob. Hey, Jose next door, he's going to be left behind. Aunt Maria, what's going to happen to her? It becomes a whole different story when we put a face on it. At the end of the age, everyone alive at the time who doesn't know Jesus is going to be subject to these judgments. Those of us who are sober need to love our friends and family enough to wake them up before their time is up. Years ago, I, I had a bad case of indigestion. Don't know what it was. Probably ate a little too much pizza, I'm not sure. But I had a bad case of indigestion, just turned 50, and I figured, oh no, this is the big one. And so I, I mistook my chest pains for a heart attack, and I went to the doctor, went to see the doctor. I suppose this man went to college. He was a doctor. I even suppose he did a little graduate work, even medical school. But I'll never forget what this fellow told me. He said, well, it sure is a good thing you came in today because a lot of people ignore the warning signs. They just go to bed, and in the morning they wake up dead. <laughs> I said, they wake up dead? 
This was an educated man who told me they wake up dead. I immediately asked to see his diploma. No, I didn't, but. <laughs> the doctor, though, must have been speaking spiritually. For in that sense, everyone will wake up after they're dead. In the afterlife, everybody's going to be fully aware. We're all going to clearly see God's truth. We're all going to be aware of our need for Jesus. But at that point, it'll be too late. The idea Paul is stressing to us here is to wake up before you die, not afterwards. Notice verse 7. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. And if I said it once, I said it to my teenagers a thousand times. Nothing good happens after midnight. <laughs> it's true. Only shenanigans occur after midnight, my friends. And the statistics bear this out, by the way. I didn't have these statistics when my kids were teenagers. I wish I did. But did you know that 62% of sex crimes, 71% of car thefts happen at night? Evil people like to operate under the cover of darkness. And the same is true spiritually. If there's sin in your heart, you'll run from God's light. You'll run from God's truth. You'll avoid church and fellowship every chance you get. Any excuse to miss becomes a good excuse. You'll do all you can to stay as far from God as possible. Paul says, but let us who are of the day be sober. I'm thinking of the guy who gets drunk one night. He's suffering a major league hangover. It's past noon. He's still in bed. He's got the curtains all closed. Suddenly, Paul busts into his bedroom. Throws open the curtains, lets the daylight pour into the room, shakes his friend, starts the IV coffee drip. Paul is sobering up his friend. And this is what he wants to do with us. Have you been wasting your time drunk on sin and asleep to God? It's time to wake up and get up and wise up and look up. We need to join the day and live in light of God's word. Your life will be better if you live it sober. And once Paul gets his bud off the bud and out of the bed, he gets him dressed and he gets him ready. Paul finds him and us some proper attire for the heart and for the head. He tells us, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. We need both a breastplate for the heart and a helmet for the head. The breastplate of faith and love protects the heart. You know, a police officer doesn't go into a dangerous situation without putting on his bulletproof vest. And neither should a Christian go anywhere without faith and love covering his heart. You know, the heart is the seat of the desires. If you really desire a thing, you'll say, man, I want that with all my heart. That's why we should be careful with what we want. Our heart usually follows our values. You remember Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Understand, the heart is a follower. You know, people who talk about following their heart, they've got it backwards. We don't follow our heart. We desire and we follow what we value. Our heart follows what we value, what we deem is important. Following your heart is like letting the tail wag the dog. 
faith and love decide the direction of our heart? What do you believe in? What is it that you really value? This is what shapes your desires. People who say, I just follow my heart, really don't. Their heart follows what they believe and what they love. And this is why we need to wake up, my friends. This is why we need to sober up. We need to decide that God's word is true, that his ways should be pursued. What is it that you truly believe? What is it that you really love? Decide those things and then get your heart in line to follow. Cover your heart with faith and love. And then Paul says, use a helmet, the hope of salvation. Make sure your mind continually thinks salvation thoughts. It's so easy to let our minds get drift, drift off into politics or into sports or into whatever it is that this world is into. I'll never forget being challenged by a quote I heard used in reference to C.S. Lewis. Someone described C.S. Lewis as the most thoroughly converted man he had ever met. This is what I want to be. I want to be thoroughly Christian. I want to see myself in Christ. I want to view all of life from God's perspective. I want to see you through God's eyes. I want biblical attitudes and biblical habits. I want to believe I can change. I want a case of salvation on the brain. That's what I want. One year, my son, Zach, he was a catcher on his baseball team, and they had just come out with those new hockey goalie-style catcher's face mask. You know those things? Well, at the time, they were the latest and the greatest equipment. And I'll never forget going to the store. I was going to buy him one for his Christmas gift. And I'll never forget the sticker shock. $189 for one of those things? You've got to be kidding. Immediately, I decided that that old catcher's mask would be just fine for my son. <laughs> and you know what? I'm afraid that that's the choice that too many Christians make. Rather than take on new thoughts, rather than let salvation color our thinking, they just continue in the old ruts. Oh, they get saved, but they go right back to the old thinking. A new helmet would be too much trouble. I'm sure you've heard the definition of insanity. Insanity is expecting the same thing done the same way to yield a different result. See, that's why you need a new mindset. You need a new way of thinking. You need to buckle up the helmet of salvation. And here's the good news. Even though spiritual head protection is expensive, it's free to us. For the helmet of the hope of salvation was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Salvation and all of its ramifications are free, but we've got to strap it on. A catcher would never think of entering a game without a face mask. And you and I will never be victorious Christians without a new mindset. Are we learning to think about ourselves and about others and about life from God's perspective, we should be. We need to strap on the helmet of salvation. And then verse 9. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live forever or live together with him. How hopeful is that? 
whether these bodies of ours wake or sleep, in essence, whether we're dead or alive, we'll be forever with Jesus. No matter the situation we face, this is our destiny, friends, on earth or in heaven, to fellowship with our Lord Jesus. And then verse 11 is such a fitting conclusion. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. Life can be tough. I'm sure some of you are bearing heavy burdens this morning. But the tribulation that you've endured is nothing compared to what will one day come upon this planet. And Jesus is planning a surprise return. He's coming for his church. That's why we need to be rapture ready. We need to be alert. We need to be awake. We need to be sober. Your destiny is to live forever with Jesus. And you can start fulfilling that destiny even today.